Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome back to the 29th floor for our Sunday School lesson this week. Today, with this lesson, we'll be covering the Come Follow Me material for June 24th through 30th, including the chapters of Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21. And the subject that we'll be focusing on is the resurrection of the Savior. And uh, the account that we have uh, for the events in the Gospels that follow shortly after his death. Uh, last week we covered up through the actual death of the Savior, talking about uh, the actual potential physical causes of his death. And now, uh, obviously, the most important part about uh, Christ is not that he died, but rather that he was resurrected. He was uniquely positioned, and he had the unique ability to overcome the bands of death. He subjected himself to death for the sole purpose so that he could overcome death, unlocking that great lock and turning the key, making it possible so that each of us could also be resurrected. And that's what we'll be focusing on with our lesson today. <clears throat> now, the records are not completely consistent in their ordering of the events uh, after the resurrection, or sorry, after the Savior's death as part of the resurrection. We know that he was, uh, he, he did in fact die on a Friday before sunset. As soon as the sun set on that Friday, um, we entered then the second day. So he died on Friday, that being the first day. The second day, the sunset began the Sabbath. And of course, the reason um, the Roman soldiers went around breaking legs uh, of those who were hanging on the cross on that Friday afternoon was so that they would not die on the Sabbath. Of course, the Savior had already passed. Uh, his spirit had already left his body, so it was unnecessary to do that. They instead, just to confirm, uh, pierced his side uh, with a sword, and blood and water flowed out, uh, likely indicating that he literally died of a broken heart, as we talked about last week. But again, that death occurred on a Friday afternoon before sunset. <clears throat> this, starting with sunset is the Sabbath day. That's day two. And then once the sunset uh, on the Sabbath day and the Sabbath had ended, that was that then became the third day. And we know that it was on the third day that Christ was resurrected. So again, it's important to remember he was not necessarily dead for uh, three 24-hour periods, but uh, he rose on the third day, which would have been uh, any time after sunset on Saturday, which was the which marked the end of the Jewish Sabbath. Now, early Sunday morning, we know that uh, several women came uh, prepared with spices, uh, and they were planning to anoint the body of Christ and prepare it for a proper Jewish burial, uh, which according to the customs of their time. When they arrived, they noticed that the large stone that had been put in place by the Roman soldiers, and if you recall, the uh, Jewish leaders had gone to Pilate and asked that uh, soldiers be put in place 
with a large stone in front of the tomb to guard the tomb to make sure the apostles or the other disciples of Christ did not come in and steal the body, recognizing that he claimed that on the third day he would rise. It is kind of interesting to note that it appears that the Jewish leaders recognized that he claimed he would rise on the third day, but the apostles themselves, um, who, who certainly knew were more familiar with his teachings than anyone, they seem to, throughout the scriptures, have a hard time, especially in these stories, it takes them a while to catch on that Christ is, in fact, going to rise on the third day. Regardless, these women appear at, uh, at, the, at the sepulcher, they appear at his tomb, and the stone has been rolled away, and there are no guards to be, find, uh, to be found anywhere. Uh, rather than guards waiting for them, there are angels waiting there. And in Luke 24, uh, verse 5, uh, these angels, the angel asks these women uh, a probing question. Um, the women come and they, they see the angels, they're very perplexed and they're very confused. And the angels ask them in verse 5, Why seek ye the living among the dead? And it's obviously in the context of, in which it is given, it is clear, why are you looking for, this, for the body of a living God? among those who are dead. But I think this is also a profound question for each of us. How often are we guilty of seeking for the living among the dead? And what I mean when I say that is, when we talk about living, we're talking about those things which help us progress, that help us become better, and they prepare us to return to be with God the Father. Those are things that we will deem to be living. Eternal life is eternal progression. Those things that help us live are those things that help us progress. So we should be seeking for those things that are living. But how often do we turn to the things of the world in order to progress, in order to improve, in order to get better? And of course, it's the things of the world that are dead, that are temporary. They're only good for this short period of time. I think I particularly am guilty of that. My job as a lawyer is to advise clients on the law. That's what I do as a lawyer, very simple. But every single law that I advise them on is very, very temporary. It's focused solely on this life, on this world. The securities law that I practice is going to have absolutely no application the moment my spirit leaves my body. I'm completely aware of that. But yet I spend so much of my time learning about these dead laws, about these laws that have no ability whatsoever to give life, to give progression, and to give true growth. So that's not to say that we give up all things that are, have to do with this world, um, but of course, when it comes to the most important things, as we seek for life and as we seek for progression, we need to make sure that we are doing so <clears throat> by looking in the proper channels, by looking in, in places where life could be found. Um, of course, we live in a fallen world, and so death is inevitable, and it's all around us. And it, So it even takes faith to see that there are things that are, in this context, living. It takes faith to see and to understand that, there, that it is possible to have eternal life to have eternal progression, to look beyond the advice and the ways and the teachings and philosophies of the world. It takes faith to do that. Uh, but it is so important to do so, that we, as followers of Christ, we as Christians, 
are not guilty of seeking for living among the dead, but instead, as we seek for life eternal, as we seek for living, we look to Christ, who is not a dead God, a living God, a resurrected God, a God capable of providing the life that we desire. So after hearing the angel's message, uh, these women go and they tell the apostles uh, what they have observed. John and Peter uh, hear this message, and they both come running. And as they arrive, interesting to note that John comments that he arrived first. He's uh, apparently a better runner and better shaped than Peter. Um, as they come running, they find that the tomb is empty. And once they find the tomb is empty, we don't have a lot of details as to how they reacted, other than they find an empty tomb, and then they go home. They go about... They go, they return to their other business. But Mary remains. Mary stays in the garden. She remains crying. She's moved. She's so emotional. She loved the Savior so much, and now she can't even find his body. She can't begin to imagine what could possibly have happened to this man that she loved so much. What could have happened even to his body that she can't even give him the appropriate respect that she would like to in order to honor him and honor his passing. So she remains crying, and she has an interaction with someone that she assumes to be the gardener. Of this interaction, uh, Elder Talmadge, in his book, Jesus the Christ, wrote, One word from his living lips, that is, the man that she assumes to be the gardener, changed her agonized grief into ecstatic joy. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. The voice, the tone, the tender accent she had heard and loved in the earlier days lifted her from despairing depths into which she had sank. She turned and saw the Lord, in a transport of joy, she reached out her arms to embrace him, uttering only the enduring and worshipful word, Rabboni, meaning, my beloved master. I've always loved this story. I've always tried to picture and, and try to grasp in some small way the emotions that must have been flooding through Mary's mind, as in one moment she was completely grief-stricken, not knowing where the body of this man she loved so deeply was, and in the next moment, he's living, he's speaking with her, he's instructing her, he's right there in front of her. Anyone that has uh, lost a loved one can only imagine the unbelievable joy that would come from during your moment of grief to all of a sudden have that loved one reappear to you and be right there, living, breathing, speaking with you. Must have been a truly unbelievable moment for Mary. And what a, what a blessed woman she, she is uh, to be the first witness that we have record of of the Lord's resurrection, to be the first person to encounter a resurrected being ever, and to have it be our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What uh, what a marvelous privilege that must have been for her, and what a remarkable woman Mary must truly be. Later that afternoon, two disciples are walking, and they meet a stranger. And the stranger here overhears their conversation, and ask them why they're so sad. What's going on? They tell them about what has happened to the Savior. 
about how how they had great hopes for him, and then all of a sudden he was he was gone. He had departed from them. He had been killed. Interesting that uh, in Luke twenty four verse twenty one. Uh, one of the disciples tells the stranger teaching about Christ, he said, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Ironic, isn't it? Christ is standing next to them. They don't recognize him. And they're sad because they had thought Christ would have redeemed Israel. And of course, it's only been just a matter of hours since Christ has in fact redeemed Israel with his with his bleeding and his suffering, with his willing to, willingness to die on the cross, and of course with his triumphal resurrection, he had in fact already redeemed Israel, and they didn't quite know it. And sometimes that's what happens in our lives. Sometimes we keep waiting for the miracle and expecting it to happen in the way that we think it should happen. And when that doesn't quite happen, we get perplexed, we get sad, we don't quite understand why this miracle, why this blessing that we anticipated, that we had faith would happen, just hasn't happened. When reality is, sometimes, it's already happened. Our eyes just aren't yet open, and we haven't recognized the ways in which it happened. And of course, in this instance, they were expecting a political deliverance, delivering Israel from uh, the Romans that had control over them at the time. But the delivery from but the delivery and the redemption that Christ provided was so much more meaningful, so much more powerful than the redemption that they had expected. And at this point, he had already completed it. Uh, something certainly for us to think about as we get frustrated and as we think about some of our disappointments and uh, as, we, as we sometimes feel that blessings that we expect aren't coming. Might it be the case that they have already come? We just haven't recognized it, and our eyes are just not yet open. And so the stranger that they encounter, of course, is Christ, and they don't recognize him. And so Christ uh, begins to teach them from the scriptures. And as they walk and they arrive at their destination, uh, the, the, savior, uh, the, the Savior, the stranger, abides with them and stays with them. And as he's eating dinner with them, he begins to break bread and give them water. It appears he's beginning to administer the sacrament to them. Now, interesting to note that these are not the 11 remaining apostles. These are just two separate disciples of Christ. Certainly, these disciples had had interactions with the apostles before. But uh, one would wonder how much exposure they had had to the sacrament at this point. The sacrament, of course, had been introduced the previous Thursday night, the night before the Savior was taken and was arrested, the, the night that the Savior was taken and arrested, and the night before he was crucified. Uh, you know, between that Thursday and this Sunday, had word spread about the sacrament? Uh, we, we, we don't know, but apparently as Christ uh, teaches them and introduces and provides the sacrament to them, uh, they begin to recognize him. And once they recognize him, he, he departs from them. <clears throat> These disciples then go and find the remaining 11 apostles. And as they are talking, as this group of men are talking... Uh, Christ appears in their midst, and he shows to them his body. He shows to them that he's even able to, to eat, uh, giving them tangible evidence that this is not just a spirit, this is not just a ghost, this is not just a vision that they're seeing, but they are seeing a real, physical, 
resurrected body, even capable of eating. In Luke chapters 24, uh, chapter 24, 45 through uh, 47, it says, uh, while, the Christ, while Christ was with them and while he was enjoying this meal with them, then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So, <clears throat> here we have kind of a summation of what happened to Christ. He suffered and was resurrected. And the reason that he suffered and was resurrected was so that repentance and remission of sins in his name could be had among all nations, among all people, beginning at Jerusalem and spreading outward. Interestingly, John records that uh, during this interaction that uh, Christ gave them the Holy Ghost. That's in John chapter 20, verse 22, where it says, He breathed on, breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So, interestingly, they apparently had not had the Holy Ghost yet. They hadn't had that witness that comes from the third member of the Godhead yet. Or at least they hadn't had his companionship, the gift of the Holy Ghost, as we refer to it these days. So, and it's important to remember that this was something that Christ had promised them earlier in John, that he would be giving to them once he left. He even told them, if I stay with you, you cannot receive the Holy Ghost. And if you recall from our lesson a few weeks ago, as we talked about uh, John and the teachings of the Savior, one of the things he emphasized was that he would give them the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost would lead them to Christ, so that through the Holy Ghost they could be one with Christ. And as they, or as we, become one with Christ, then Christ leads us back to God the Father. And because Christ is one with God the Father, as we become one with Christ, we too become one with God the Father. And this type of transitive uh, relationship, it is Christ through the Holy Ghost, that makes it possible for us to return to God the Father. And so it is essential that Christ returns and gives to them the Holy Ghost so that they could have this additional witness who would lead them back to Christ, who would guide them and teach them the things that they need to know so that they can continue to follow Christ as they, and as they do so, as they follow Christ they will be on their path to returning to the Father. Here we also have uh, a, a record of an additional apostle who apparently was not here at this original meeting when the Savior appeared and when he ate and when he showed them his body, that being Thomas. And I think it's important that we are charitable uh, in any judgments that we pass, uh, uh, that we make towards this apostle. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was chosen by our Savior. And in my mind, it's, it, it isn't completely reasonable to think that he would have heard the testimonies of all the women, of all the other ten apostles, and many other disciples 
about the resurrected Christ. It's not reasonable to think that he would have heard all of these testimonies and still not believed. I think what's more likely is that rather than not believing, he wasn't satisfied. He wanted something more. <clears throat> he wanted to see the Savior for himself. He wanted to get the same witness that they all had. I think that's a reasonable request. I can see myself certainly in his situation also wishing to have seen that, thinking, man, they got to see the resurrected body. They got to touch the prince in his hands. They got to touch the wound, see the wound in his side. I want that too. I want that sure witness. But it's in uh, John chapter 20, verse 29, when Christ finally does appear to him, and he is given a chance to see these things for himself, to see Christ's resurrected body. The Savior teaches him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. I think the lesson here is that we should be grateful for the amount of light, for the amount of knowledge, for the degree of testimony that the Savior has given to us. Now, of course, we should always be striving to deepen our conversion, to deepen and strengthen our testimony. Of course we should. But we shouldn't fall in the trap of thinking that other people have stronger testimonies, and unless you get some type of additional witness, some type of additional testimony, you either won't believe or won't in some way be satisfied. I remember in a branch I had previously served in, there was a, a young lady who didn't, felt, didn't feel it was fair that other people could go to the temple, but she wasn't yet able to. She really wanted to see what was in the temple, but the branch president didn't feel it was appropriate to give her that recommend yet. He didn't feel that she was spiritually prepared. He felt that her desire to go to the temple was more of a curiosity uh, rather than because she had truly converted and was deeply believing and was spiritually ready to go to the temple. And that shook this young woman. Um, and she actually, unfortunately, never made it all the way to the temple. I think we need to, again, be learn to be satisfied with the amount of knowledge and with the light that we have received. And this can be a challenge. It reminds me of Alma's plea uh, in the Book of Alma, in the Book of Mormon, chapter chapter 29, um, when he famously uh, declared that he wished he was an angel, and the wish of his heart was that he could fly around speaking with the voice of God and declaring repentance to everyone. But in verse 3, he gives a profound insight, and he says, But behold, I am a man, and do sin in my wish, for I ought to be content with the things which the Lord hath allotted unto me. And that can be a challenge, but it's important. Sometimes we see others in positions of uh, positions of authority, opportunities to do to do things that we wish we had. And those desires might not be wrong. But if we let those desires overwhelm us, and because of those desires we fail to progress and we fail to appreciate the blessings and the privileges that we have, that can lead us down, uh, potentially down a dangerous road, one that we should not go. So we should take uh, solace in the Savior's teaching here that blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. Blessed are they that are satisfied with the amount of light that God has given to them. And based upon that light, based on that knowledge that they have, 
they continue to believe. They continue to press forward. They continue to do the things that the Lord would want them to do. And then line upon line, precept upon precept, their testimonies are built, and they are strengthened, and they gradually receive the knowledge, that confirmation that they seek. So let's talk a little bit about the resurrection. Let's talk about uh, what it means, what it is, and why it is significant. This is the appropriate place to do so, given that we are discussing the first resurrection, the ultimate, uh, in which Christ overcame death. He broke the bands of death and made it possible that each of us should be resurrected. Joseph Smith taught, The fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. So the resurrection itself, according to the prophet Joseph Smith, is part of the fundamental teachings of our religion. And everything else, all additional teachings, other than the testimony that Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, Everything else, according to the prophet Joseph Smith, is just an appendage. It's just in addition to these most fundamental, these most basic teachings about Christ. President Hunter said, Surely the resurrection is the center of every Christian's faith. It is the greatest of all the miracles performed by the Savior of the world. Without it, we are indeed left hopeless. Let me borrow the words of Paul. If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is our preaching vain, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Back to President Hunter. Without the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes a litany of wise sayings and seemingly unexplainable miracles but sayings and miracles with no ultimate triumph. No, the ultimate triumph is in the ultimate miracle. For the first time in the history of mankind, one who was dead raised himself into living immortality. He was the Son of God, the Son of our immortal Father in heaven, and his triumph over physical and spiritual death is the good news every Christian tongue should speak. I love that teaching by, by President Hunter. Without the resurrection, the Christian story simply is meaningless. The Christian story simply is a group of nice teachings that can make you feel better, probably make you a better person, but are not able to actually provide any type of salvation. They do not provide any hope. They are not able... <clears throat> to help us overcome the darkness, to escape our trials. They might make you feel better for a time, but ultimately, the result would be the same as every other teaching, every other philosophy of men. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives teeth to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that makes it meaningful, that makes it eternal, that fills us with hope, so that we can look forward knowing that 
these teachings are not just temporary. They're not just here for a short time. They're not just here, it's not just medication designed to numb us, <clears throat> designed to dull our senses so that we can get through this life. No, they provide us hope that as we endure this life, as we endure the challenges and the struggles of this life, we can look forward to something greater. It's also powerful proof that Christ himself was not just a philosopher, a teacher of this life, but rather he had power over death. He had power over this life. And if we believe in him, his teachings will lead us beyond this life lead us to where we ultimately want to go. The, uh, within the gospel topics in the church's gospel library app, there are teachings about the resurrection. Under the, under the topic of resurrection, it says, Because of the fall of Adam and Eve, we are subject to physical death, which is the separation of the spirit from the body, through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all people will be resurrected and saved from physical death. Resurrection is the uniting of the spirit with the body in an, in an immortal state, no longer subject to disease or death. At the time of the resurrection, we will be judged according to our works. We shall be brought to stand before God, knowing even as we know now, and have a bright recollection of all our guilt. The eternal glory we receive will depend on our faithfulness. Although all people will be resurrected, only those who have come unto Christ and partaken of the fullness of his gospel will inherit exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Sometimes we mistakenly think of resurrection and judgment as two separate steps, but they're actually the same. Our resurrection is our judgment. Resurrection itself Brigham Young taught, is an ordinance of the gospel. Just as our baptism was an ordinance, just as receiving the priesthood is an ordinance, or receiving the Holy Ghost, or our endowment, or our sealing in the temple, those are all saving ordinances, as is the resurrection. And as we are resurrected, we receive our bodies back. Death, of course, means a separation and the resurrection is the bringing together of two things that once were separated, our body and our spirit, into an eternal union. And of course, when we bring two things together that were separated as one, that is an atonement. So the resurrection is a manifestation of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is an atonement to the degree that it brings two things that were separated together. And as our spirit is brought together with an immortal, perfected physical body, the question is, what type of physical body will we receive? Will we be worthy to receive a celestial body because we have lived faithfully, because we have done the things that we were asked to do? If when we're resurrected, we are worthy to receive a celestial resurrected body, then ours will be a celestial resurrection and we will inherit the celestial kingdom. If when we are resurrected we are not worthy to receive a celestial resurrected body, but instead we receive some lesser gloried body, 
then we will not be worthy to enjoy the celestial kingdom because we will not have the type of resurrected body that is able to abide within the celestial kingdom. So the resurrection itself is our judgment. So as we look forward to the resurrection, it is not only the promise that we will live again, but it is the understanding that we will be judged and that we will be responsible for our actions, for our faithfulness, for our relationship with our Savior. Because it is ultimately only through our Savior that we are able to be resurrected and that we are able to receive not just a just judgment, but a merciful judgment. And as we are able to lay claim upon Jesus Christ, upon his merits, upon his mercy, upon his grace, as we have entered into covenant relationships with him and kept those covenants, we will be able to, when, res when resurrected, receive that glory that we are worthy of, not because of our own worthiness, but because of our faith and our relationship in and with Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of the Savior is the most fundamental aspect of our religion. It is what ties everything together. It is our hope in the future. It is our expectation that one day we will stand accountable for our relationship with God and for our actions and for our faith in Jesus Christ. And everything else, everything else that we do, everything that we teach, and everything that we say <clears throat> is in anticipation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is that promise of a resurrection that gives us hope, that allows us to move forward, that strengthens us and, and encourages us when we're down and when we're sad. <clears throat> Certainly anyone that has ever stood by the graveside of a loved one, that has ever been there as the casket closes for a final time, that has ever watched as a box bearing the body of someone you love is lowered into the ground. Certainly is it, it is at that point that one realizes the power of the resurrection and the hopelessness that we would feel without that resurrection and the gratitude that we should have for Jesus Christ who makes that resurrection possible. So that as we say goodbye to loved ones, as we confront the reality of our mortality, we can do so with hope and with faith, knowing that, then, that the end of this life is not the end, knowing that there is more because of Jesus Christ and because of his atonement. That most glorious act that culminated in the resurrection of his spirit and his perfected celestial body. Well, the book of John does not end with the account of his resurrection. Uh, John is unique in that he has an additional chapter at the end. Uh, according to uh, Thomas Wayment, who recently has prepared a, a wonderful retranslation 
uh, of the New Testament, one I would encourage you, if you're interested, to to uh, to get. He's a, a faithful member of the church, a BYU professor who has uh, retranslated the New Testament and language that is both act more accurate and easy to follow uh, than the King James Version. But he, he notes that John 21, many scholars believe, uh, was added as a postscript to the Gospel of John. And I don't know the background or who added it or why they did, but I am grateful that they did because the account in here is truly, truly remarkable. And for a powerful message about this beautiful account, I would encourage you to to look at uh, the October 2012 General Conference Address delivered by Elder Holland titled The First Great Commandment, in which Elder Holland, an apostle of God, talks about his feelings towards these apostles, reminding us that they were just new converts of a few years, reminding us that they just, in a lot of cases, simply did not know what to do, and after Christ had been resurrected, resurrected, after he had ascended, after all of these wonderful things that had happened, they didn't know what to do next. Peter's response was, well, I'm going to go back to my day job. I guess I now return to doing what I was doing previously, grateful for the experiences that I've had and the testimonies that I've gained, but I don't know what else to do, so I'm going back to my fishing. And others of the apostles followed him. And the first night they were fishing, they caught nothing. And instantly, this should remind us of a previous account in which they were fishing, in which they had fished through the night, as recorded in Luke 5. And again, they had caught nothing. And if you recall in that previous account, after their, uh, after their toils through the night and they had caught nothing, they had taken their nets... They had gone through the laborious process of taking them off the boat, of drying them and folding them and, pre and setting them aside so that they could go at it again the next night. It was only then that the Savior said, go back out there, try it again, and see what happens. And of course they did, and their nets broke, and they were unable to, to the, the, their boats began to sink because of the weight of the fishes that they caught. So we're reminded of that previous account. <clears throat> and apparently, Peter still didn't grasp the meaning of the call that he, had been that he had received during that first account, in which the Savior told him that from henceforth he was, call he was called to catch men, not for a few years, but from henceforth. And so we turn back to this account, after Christ's resurrection, they're fishing again. They're back to their day jobs. And they work all night, and they catch nothing. And an individual on the shore yells to them, What have you caught? We've caught nothing. Cast your nets again on the right side. And as they did so, they caught so many fish that they weren't able to haul in the nets. They instantly, both John and Peter, instantly recognized that it was Christ who was calling to them. The irrepressible Peter throws off his clothes, jumps in, the, jumps in the Sea of Galilee, and swims to shore so that he can be the first. 
to fall down at the feet of his Savior and to worship him. But it's the conversation that they have afterwards that I find to be so beautiful. After eating, Christ asked Peter a deep and probing question. In verse 15, he says, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? I would assume that the the these he is talking about here was the fish, was the Sea of Galilee. It was the boat that he had owned. It was the lifestyle that he he had planned on going back to. And my understanding is that the life of a fisherman was actually not a, it was obviously a a job that required hard work, but it was also financially very rewarding, especially if you have the capital to afford your own boat. But Christ asked him, Peter, do you love me more than you love this life? Do you love me more than you love all of the things that you have? Look around you, Peter. You've got it pretty good here. You've got a good life that you're going back to. But do you love me more than you love these? And of course, Peter answers, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And Christ responds, Feed my sheep. Interesting to note that the question here was not, Do you love me? But it was a comparative. Christ wanted to know his priorities. Perhaps better put, Peter needed to consider his priorities. There was no doubt that Peter loved Christ. But the question was, did he love Christ more than the things of the world? Was he also guilty of looking for the living among the dead? Or was he willing to put aside the things of the world? in order to follow his Savior, Jesus Christ. Of course, he repeats the same question two more times, so that three times Peter has now had the opportunity to confirm to his Lord and Savior that he loves him. Perhaps he was doing so as ways so that Peter could compensate for his previous three denials of the Savior that had taken place just a few hours before. Elder Holland said of this, During this exchange, after Christ had asked him three times, Do you love me? He said, By now surely Peter is feeling truly uncomfortable. Perhaps there is in his heart the memory of only a few days earlier when he had been asked another question three times and he had answered equally emphatically, but in the negative. Or perhaps he began to wonder if he misunderstood the master teacher's question. Or perhaps he was searching his heart, seeking honest confirmation of the answer he had given so readily, almost automatically. Whatever his feelings, Peter said for the third time, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. To which Jesus responded, and here again I acknowledge my non-scriptural elaboration, perhaps saying something like, Then Peter, why are you here? Why are we back on this same shore, by these same nets, having this same conversation? Wasn't it obvious then, and isn't it obvious now, that if I want fish, I can get fish? What I need, Peter, are disciples. I need them forever. 
I need someone to feed my sheep and save my lambs. I need someone to preach my gospel and defend my faith. I need someone who loves me, truly, truly loves me, and loves what our Father in Heaven has commissioned me to do. Elder Holland continues, If ye love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. So we have neighbors to bless, children to protect, the poor to lift up, the truth to defend. We have wrongs to make right, truths to share and good to do. In short, we have a life of devoted discipleship to give and demonstrating our love of the Lord. We can't quit and we won't and we can't go back. After an encounter with the living Son of the living God, nothing is ever again to be as it was before. So here Christ calls Peter for the second time to give his life in devotion to the Savior and his message. And of course we know from the record that Peter lived to fulfill that requirement. And he died in fulfillment of that requirement. And so that is now the challenge to each of us. The question of, do we love Christ? And do we love him more than the temptations of the world? Are we willing to give everything that we have to our Savior in order to show our love to him, in order to follow him? Christ gave everything to us. He gave all that he could. He endured pain and torture and torment beyond anything that we could endure. And then after he died, he took up his body again and was resurrected, making it possible for each of us to be resurrected. And so now the question that we each must confront is, do we love Christ? Will we reciprocate that great love that he gave to us by showing our faithfulness, by loving him, by serving others, by sharing his gospel, and by teaching those around us about him, making it possible for them to also enjoy the incredible blessings of the gospel made possible through Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for my Savior. I'm grateful for his resurrection. I'm grateful for the hope that it provides and for all that it makes possible for each of us as long as we are willing to show that we love Christ more than the things of the world, that we are willing and that we will look for the living, among the living, looking for Christ as our living God, not as a God who died on the cross, but a God who survived, who outlived the cross, and was resurrected on the third day so that we too can be caught up to live with him if we will prove faithful. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.